0: Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, including Joseph Joffe on why the EU has struggled with the pandemic. Coming up on the show today, Stephen Walker, author of the new book, Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. Uh, Stephen, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks very much for having me. So congratulations on the book, and that first human to leave our planet and go into space did it 60 years ago this month.
1: 60 years ago this month. Um, In fact, to be precise, at 9.07am on April 12th, 1961, so just slightly over 60 years ago, you've got a young man called Yuri Gagarin, aged 27 years old. He's got two tiny kids he is sitting on top of an intercontinental ballistic missile the biggest missile in the world and instead of a thermonuclear warhead on top of that missile you've got him sitting inside a sort of padded human-sized cannonball and he is about to be blasted into space the first human to leave the planet either blasted into space or possibly more likely blasted into smithereens because nobody really knows at that point what exactly is going to happen next and the drama starts at that time in that moment of history 60 years ago.
0: Yeah and as you say right at the very beginning of the book there are so many twists and turns in this story that it often seems like fiction uh, and you <laughs> quote Dostoevsky saying that nothing is more fantastic than reality itself.
1: I know. It is incredible that that is the case. I mean, I had to put that disclaimer at the front of the book because my early readers kept saying, "We are just making half this stuff up. This can't have happened. And I get some of that on Twitter as well. But it genuinely, I mean, I've got my kind of academic credentials at the back. I've got got—I've got lots of footnotes for those, oh, end notes rather, for those who, who do want to see what my sources are. I don't put them as footnotes during the book because I think it, it kind of damages the reading experience really. Um, but it is extraordinarily dramatic. And even the dialogue that i have in the book is is dialogue that i verified from at least two sources and sometimes more than that and quite often it's it's stuff that was actually recorded so it is an incredible story really of this last three or four months before the first human being leaves our planet where you have essentially a race between the two major superpowers between the ussr and the United States of America. And for both of these superpowers, getting a human being into space is not only a massive technological challenge, but whichever of the superpowers succeeds is going to score a huge ideological win over the other side at a time when the Cold War is right at the epicenter of world affairs, So it's very dramatic kind of moment politically. It is a race between these two sides. And what makes it for me particularly dramatic and a dramatic story to tell is that the race is run openly on the American side and it was completely in secret on the Soviet side so you've got a secret team on the Soviet side you've got an open team of astronauts on the American side and the real question is which one of these is going to be First,
0: Yeah, it's one of the the fascinating elements of the story, actually, say that uh, the Soviet programme is a state secret. The American approach is completely different for the Soviets. Even the names of the director and the first astronaut uh, are also kept a secret. The likelihood is that uh, if Gagarin had failed, um, we just simply never would have heard of him, not because of the failure, but just because that failure probably never would have got out.
1: Absolutely. The Russians, or the Soviets at the time, (laughs) were incredibly Efficient, or rather, they weren't always quite as efficient as they thought they were, I should say, and that also comes out in the book, at hiding their failures and presenting themselves to the world as just preeminently successful. And the guy, as you rightly say, that was the sort of architect of the Soviet space program, the guy that was right at the center of events, the guy that was responsible for building that huge intercontinental ballistic missile, which Yuri Gagarin was sitting on the top of 60 years ago, and which was the most powerful missile in the world at that time. I mean, it could, it could basically lob a hydrogen bomb all the way to New York from Russia. This guy who did that, who put Sputnik into space, the first satellite, he put the first dog into space called Laika, and then put the first human being into space, was completely secret. He was known only by his initials, by people who worked for him. He was, his identity was protected everywhere. And the CIA tried desperately during his lifetime to find out who he was. And they never found out during his lifetime. He would travel around Russia protected by KGB bodyguards in case the CIA did find out and attempted a kidnap or even an assassination because he was so powerful. And he's a really big personality in the story.
0: And exactly what I was going to say, that, I mean, he is a fascinating character, Korolev, um, that he's a brilliant politician. He'd survived uh, the terror in the 1930s. And he taps into to this idea that the soviets have of, of outdoing the united states but crucially it seemed to me and you cu- you really hammer this point home that he is actually even in that system a robust empiricist he insists always that from from his scientists from the engineers that the science has to come first
1: he does but he also takes risks and he takes risks I also say in the book because he has to take risks his own career as any any person's career in that kind of crazy soviet system his whole career is dependent ultimately on the favor of those right at the top and really what we're talking about is is khrushchev nikita khrushchev who's then the premier of the soviet union This big, kind of burly sort of james bond villain type character depending on your perspective and really he needs the guy's favour. And he has his favour by building the biggest missile in the world for Khrushchev. I mean, that's the best toy that Khrushchev could ever have to dangle in front of the Americans and to terrify them. He does it with Sputnik, the first satellite as well. But the thing is that by 1961, he's slightly less in favour. And although, as you rightly say, the science is, is ever, this guy is a, is, a, is a true kind of scientist, he's a Visionary, actually, is what he is. He's a sort of, you know, a rocket visionary. He's a space visionary. At the same time, he actually takes a risk. There is a moment when the Americans stumble in March 1961. And this guy, whose wife, Nina, is a translator, translates everything English that he needs translated, including the American press, is watching. And he realises that he has about two or three weeks of a window of opportunity in which to take the biggest gamble of his career and the biggest gamble with a man's life and that is to send a human being on board a spacecraft which has not been properly tested which has not actually gone through all of the good science that he would normally espouse and put this man at risk but possibly triumph by putting him into space. And he takes that gamble. And that's part of the sort of drama of his personality because he has on the one hand, this this incredible sort of, idea. You know, he's a hardcore scientist, he's a brilliant organizer, he's a powerful personality. And yet he also gambles with his own career and more fundamentally, with a man's life,
0: yeah, because as you point out in the book, this is there's there's always a catastrophe waiting to happen. You uh, describe in great detail the air regeneration system not working, which you describe as an air killing system, and have these amazing stories of things like the last resort escape hatch that they designed, yes. where Gagarin <laughs> would be blasted out <laughs> the back door and caught twelve stories below in a net and having a bathtub. Honestly, the bathtub is
1: so extraordinary that um, they didn't have time to kind of come up with a system. And you're talking about a space program where in order to beat the Americans, they weren't at one point even going to develop spacesuits. There wasn't even time for that. But then they decided they were going to have to do it. I mean, they were this is a country that lost 27 million people in World War II. It's a country that was occupied partly by the Nazis, that was devastated by bombing, by sieges. I mean, really, its economy devastated and also is devastated by Stalin's atrocities as well, of which Korolev was a victim being in one of the Gulag labor camps. So you've really got a country that's sort of on its knees in 1945. And suddenly here they are, a few years later, about to do this extraordinary technological thing, but they do it at a cost. So one of the costs, as you rightly say, is there's no proper abort system. And it is absolutely true that they had to hunt through this this secret Cosmodrome missile complex in Kazakhstan for a bathtub, which was then connected to a wire mesh onto which this cosmonaut would fall from the top of the rocket, it's a 12-story fall. He was supposed to then crawl to this bathtub and then somehow the bathtub would get lowered by a rope to the ground. This is why the rocket was exploding all around him. I mean, you know, 260 tons of fuel blowing up all around him and then somehow be spirited away to safety. It was insane. It could never
0: have worked. But they took that risk. And, and and what about Gagarin himself? I mean, he had so little experience in comparison to the Americans like John yeah. Glenn and Alan Shepard. Uh, why why was he chosen? Well, he was chosen, the incredible thing about him was he was chosen only, finally, three
1: days before the flight. I mean, that's just extraordinary when you think they've been actually training for over a year. And when I say they, I mean about 20 of them had been training for a year. So the Russians or the Soviets were secretly training 20 cosmonauts. These are guys who are not even supposed to tell their wives and certainly not their families, their parents, whatever, anything about what they were doing. I mean, Yuri Gagarin's own wife actually didn't know that her husband was flying in a rocket into space on that day had no idea that he was even going to be the person chosen to do this because he couldn't tell her so he's chosen and the reason why he's chosen is because i think fundamentally they're not looking for pilots they're looking for people that can endure a mission these are guys that don't have the test piloting experience of the American Mercury 7 astronauts, the famous, the John Glens, the Alan Shepherds, as you're talking about. These are guys who are serving officer pilots in the Soviet Air Force, but they're not particularly experienced, and there's not much, if any, actual control of their spacecraft. What there is, is endurance, fitness, strength an ability to survive. That's what they're really looking for with these people. And the incredible thing about Yuri Gagarin was that he wasn't particularly good at any one thing but he was good at lots of things. He was very engaging. He also had the right background. He had a good Soviet background. His father was a brilliant carpenter uh, who'd actually built his own house and who, uh, you know, came from that sort of peasant background. He was good-looking. He had a fantastic smile, uh, which was going to mean a lot, actually. The smile, the dazzling Gagarin smile was going to win hearts around the world. That was important too. He was a poster boy for the Soviet Union. And what's important about all of this is that if you come back to that point I was making earlier on, that this is all about a Cold War and a divided world that could go hot at any moment, the person that could get into space first. Russian or America represented the way of the future. So if Yuri Gagarin was to be the one that achieved essentially immortality, everything about his personality then becomes important from a political point of view because he gets sent around the world selling Soviet propaganda. Effectively, he becomes their poster boy. He represents the future. And you're talking about a time when, you know, the Vietnam War is about to happen. There's Castro in Cuba. The Berlin War goes up three months later. This is a really sensitive hotspot period. So who you pick to represent your nation at its finest, at its most successful, at its greatest, is everything. And Gagarin fitted Perfectly, and did the job brilliantly, actually.
0: Yeah, and, and he seems to have this uh, incredible combination that on the one hand, he's a kind of very cheerful, very calm in the face of adversity uh, kind of character. You quote uh, the kind of the psychological report hours before uh, he's about to blast off when somebody mm. says to him, why are you smiling so much? And he says, yes. I-, I don't know. I must be a rather frivolous person. <laughs> no. But, but, but he also seems to understand that... The kind of the importance of what's going on. A simple man has been entrusted with history, a new age, he says.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that that and also a simple man has been entrusted essentially to die for his nation if necessary. I mean, because the guy that makes the selection, finally, is a man called Kamanin, who's another big character in the story, a great character. He's a sort of, he's a sort of, you know, a real martinet, Stalinist hero of the Soviet Union, all the rest of it. And this guy is the chief of cosmonaut training, but he also has a secret. And the secret that he has is that he keeps a diary completely illegally, completely illegally. I mean, he would have ended up in the camp. In the gulag himself had this diary been discovered and in what he does in that diary is he gives us a sort of to a documentary filmmaker like me this is this is gold dust he gives you a fly in the wall fly on the wall perspective of all of this stuff that is happening right at the epicenter events so he's the guy that makes this choice he's the guy that calls Yuri Gagarin and Yuri Gagarin's big rival and best friend a man called German Titov these two guys are in final competition for sort of first place. And he writes in his diary, which one of these men am I going to select for immortality? Or which one of these men am I condemning to death?
0: It's an, it's an, it's an incredibly dramatic moment in the book.
1: There is this incredible moment when... when I mean, from a, from a writer's point of view, uh, from a filmmaker's point, from a storytelling point of view, and this is kind of coming back to the twists and turns we talked about. The thing is, Richard, is that when you've got two guys competing for first place. That's a kind of a story we all know. But what makes it really powerful for me is that these two men are the closest of friends. They live in adjoining apartments in one of these kind of Soviet blocks on the fifth floor. They have a balcony that they kind of leap backwards and forwards over to drink vodka together. Their wives are friends. And a few months before the decision is made, Something awful happens with German Titov's family. He's got a little boy, a little son called Igor. And Igor dies when he's about eight or nine months old. I think it's around the autumn of 1960, so about six months or so before the flight. And the thing is, is that Yuri Gagarin and his wife Valentina, the next door neighbors, are incredibly, wonderfully supportive to German Titov and his wife, Tamara. And I know this because I interviewed Titov's wife, Tamara, who's still alive, in Moscow. And, you know, she was barely able to talk about what happened with her son, Igor, even 60 years later. It was really hard for her, but she wanted to tell me something. And what she really wanted to tell me was how amazing Yuri Gagarin was, how incredible the family was. They had a little girl of their own. And so what you've got is you've got these two people who have this rich friendship, who have this tragedy that has happened to one of them that the other one is so supportive for, and yet only one of them can be picked to be first for this extraordinary moment in history. And there is that moment, as you say, it is very dramatic because we get the story in the diary that this guy keeps, Kamanin, when the two men walk into his office three days before the flight and he says, it's Yuri and it's not Titov. And Titov comes out of that, he has to pretend he's happy for his friend, but he knows he's just, he's like Buzz Aldrin, he's number two now to Neil Armstrong forever. And he comes out of that meeting and one of the other cosmonauts comes up to him and says, and says, listen, why are you so sad, Geman? You know, you're gonna be like the second, you'll be his backup, and you'll be the second cosmonaut to go to space. And Titov says to him, who was, who was the first man to discover America? And this guy says, well, it was, you know, Christopher Columbus. And he says, and who was the second? And the guy says, I don't know. And Tito says... That's my point.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's the way that you draw the comparison with John Glenn and and Alan Shepard, Shepard going yeah. through the same thing, and then yeah. Shepard himself uh, who becomes second because of Gagarin. And, exactly. And Shepard literally smashing the table to pieces when he uh, when, the table. when when he hears the news. So these very yeah. dramatic moments. One yeah. one of the things actually that struck me as well about Gagarin and you you tell the the story of him actually in space on a kind of minute by minute. Minute, uh, basis very yeah. dramatic, but also often very moving, and it's clear that he has this kind of aesthetic sense. That uh, it's it's a wonderful moment in the book where he suddenly explain, exclaims, "I can see the earth, oh. what, kind of what beauty," and yes. you you feel as if you're there in yes. that moment.
1: Yes, yes, that was. I'm so glad because. That was, my, that was my riding in space moment. <laughs> That's as close as I'm ever going to get to anything like that. So it's a view that I've always wanted to see, and I doubt that I ever will. Although I have to say, when I was a child, I thought I would. But less about me, more about Yuri Gagarin. He absolutely said that. I have the transcripts of his radio. Um, most of the time, he was actually out, amazingly, he was actually out of any radio communication with the ground at all, which is very hard for us to believe, because we're so used to Apollo, They're always talking to each other with those beeps, you know, on the end of every transmission. That wasn't the case. Yuri Gagarin spent most of the time talking to nobody. But there was one moment, as you rightly say, which was a very, very extraordinary moment. And the way I describe it, I believe, is as close as it really happened. And the reason I know this is because Yuri Gagarin Made a secret recording of a briefing that he gave the day after his flight to the members of what was called the State Commission, the people responsible for this flight. It was a totally secret meeting. The briefing was totally secret. It was kept classified for three decades or even longer. Parts of it were not released for 50 years. And even still, not everything is released about all of this. But I was able to get hold of the recording and so I know what was actually said and felt and how he responded this is within hours of his landing and what actually happened is is there was this extraordinary moment 11 minutes after he left the ground in this kind of blast of flame and fury and this extraordinary moment when the rocket falls away and he's in this little capsule which is basically a sphere attached to a little kind of you know instrument section they called it and he suddenly feels himself lifting off his seat i mean we're, we're used to this idea but although they understood there'd be weightlessness, nobody had ever experienced weightlessness before like this. And he felt himself lifting off against his straps. And he then looked to his right, where there was a porthole, there were three portholes inside this sort of cabin, but he looked at the one on his right and he looks out of the window and he sees something that no human eye had ever seen i mean no eye at all had ever seen unless it were an alien eye in other words for three and a half billion years nobody had left earth like this nobody had left the atmosphere the biosphere and he looks out and he sees these incredible colors he sees this incredible blue, and it's so thin and so fragile, but it's so beautiful. And he says, as you rightly say, he's got this almost poetic sensibility. Um, I wouldn't say almost, I think he does have a poetic sensibility. He actually can't stop talking about how beautiful it is. And he sees the stars which don't flicker like they do on earth, because there's no atmosphere to make them flicker. And then there's this incredible moment where the sun, because his, Spacecraft is very slowly rotating. His the sun sort of slides across that window and it kind of fills the spacecraft with this beautiful, radiant light, which he also talks about. The light is so perfect and it's so pure. And this is this is the first, this is I mean, I think of this as a greater moment than going to the moon. This is the first organism from our planet to leave our planet but it's an intelligent organism this is a man who can describe with poetic sensibility what he's seeing and what is happening outside his window and he says it and he describes it in a way that is electric actually and as you rightly say and i felt that when i actually wrote this incredibly moving i mean it moving for all of us on this planet to read of this first moment when such a view, such a sight, was experienced by a human being.
0: Yeah, as you say, it, it's poetic. It's moving. Uh, it's also very difficult to get back to Earth. And the uh, the, the story of the return uh, is kind of both lucky and dramatic because they think that perhaps he might land somewhere. They're not quite sure in Africa. But he ends up coming down in a potato field in the yes. middle of Russia to be greeted by a slightly nonplussed grandmother with her granddaughter. Uh, and the first thing... They're that not greeted. I, they actually... Uh, run away to And, begin. and, and the, the first thing that he asks is is um uh, do you have any idea where i can find a telephone it's the most bizarre situation he lands in a potato field about
1: 400 to 500 kilometers off course um and there is as you say there's a grandmother and a child um and i have their testimonies is in the book who are picking potatoes and they look up to see this guy he had to parachute separately from the capsule this is a, again a lie that was The the, the Soviets always claimed that he'd land in his capsule, which they had to claim in order for him to claim the world altitude record. You have to land back in the craft that you take off in, and that didn't happen because this again, the technology wasn't there to land him on terra firma inside the capsule. He just died. So he had to, like a jet, he had to, you know, literally a jet from the capsule, parachuted separately to the ground, lands in this potato field there's this what they look up they see this guy parachuting down they're terrified they start running away he screams no no i'm soviet i'm soviet i'm i'm you know and 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 it sounds really weird because he hasn't taken his helmet off and the little girl is, is is terrified this is some sort of monster that's arrived from the sky finally he manages to convince them that he's actually soviet and safe and at that point and this is, a, 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 he just he needs to get to a phone, as you say. He, he's got to report that he's safely on the ground. We are so far away from Apollo, from all of those landings that we know of in the sea with, you know, destroyers and aircraft carriers and live TV, none of that. She says, you can borrow my horse. Do you know how to bridle a horse? That's what she says to the first man. He's been traveling around the whole world. He's seen a sunset and a sunrise. He's been travelling at 18,000 miles an hour, he's seen sights that no human eye had ever seen before, as I was saying, and now he's got to find a phone and get on a
0: horse. It's fantastic. It's just like a moment out of Chekhov or something. It is. Now, I mean, nothing could have have prepared him for the reaction at the base, but also around the world you have these incredible scenes. Why did it have such an impact, do you think?
1: (laughs) I think that's a great question, you know, and it is. It is because the impact. I mean, just to, to set the scene, the impact was unbelievable. I mean, this is a man. Hard for us to realise this today, unless you're living in Russia, where he's still very much an iconic figure, very much so, and and very celebrated. And this day, April the twelfth, is 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 a, is a national holiday in in Russia. But this is somebody. This is somebody who became the most famous man on the planet almost overnight i mean he really did he was a rock star of rock stars within hours and newspapers all over the world were celebrating what he had done apart from as the united states of america had actually seen the significance of this moment as one of the most important moments of 20th century history as i believe it, it, it is in fact more than 20th century history but why did these Russians, these Soviet citizens specifically, why did they, why, what was behind all of this? I think it's, it's, it's as I try to explain in the book, this touched something very deep in the Soviet Union and particularly in Russia, because Gagarin was Russian. This touched that sense that we, we Russians, we can beat America, we can be great, we can be powerful, we can be special, we can reclaim ourselves, our identity and our pride from all of the horrors and disasters and failures of at least part of the Second World War, and indeed of the terrible years of Stalin's dictatorship, and we can essentially reclaim ourselves. There is some sense in all of this that he is touching the zeitgeist at a very, very deep level. And when you look at the crowds on the streets in Moscow, at this enormous, what what was supposed to be like a parade, but turned into the biggest party in Moscow's history ever to this day, you see, and I've got lots and lots of cameras, I've seen lots of raw footage of all of this stuff. It's not, it is really not measured and mannered and controlled this is spontaneous there's no way you could control crowds like this they're going crazy for him I mean they really are going crazy for him because he is them and they are him there is this connection across from all of these people to this moment that he's achieved and they feel this connection very very strongly and the people that I interviewed decades and decades later, 60 years later, who had been in those crowds, who'd watched Gagarin in his limousine with Khrushchev and with his wife and traveling to Red Square with tens of thousands of cheering, applauding, singing, dancing, laughing people on both sides. All of this is, is felt to this day. And I don't think it was just felt in Russia either. I think it was felt across much of the world too. Um, There's a a wonderful live transmission from the BBC of Yuri Gagarin arriving at the airport on that day. So it's just two days after the flight. And he arrives in Moscow airport and walks down this long red carpet towards Khrushchev and all these people sitting up on a sort of dais and his wife, who he hasn't seen for, for two weeks. And he's walking there and Dimbleby, Richard Dimbleby, the famous Richard Dimbleby, says this is a man who has seen and done things that no human has seen and done before. And you can hear the wonder and the awe and the excitement in Richard Dimbleby's voice as Gagarin walks down that red carpet, live television broadcast to the rest of Europe, as well as the whole of the Soviet Union in 1961. There is this sense of a real moment. And this man is at the center of that moment. And this feeling of excitement is almost everywhere except in the United States of America where there is a feeling of anger and of humiliation and of defeat and of a need to do something to change things and redress the balance.
0: Yeah, and as you show in the book, and actually we had Larry Hass on uh, earlier in the month uh, talking about his book on Kenne- the Kennedys in the world, talking about things like the Bay of Pigs, uh, soon it will become the, the, the Berlin Wall going up, as you mentioned earlier, that there is a, a genuine sense that America is falling behind uh, in the Cold War. You quote Kennedy saying can anyone tell me how we catch up? Is there anywhere we can leapfrog them? What do we do? And of course the answer to that becomes the Apollo Program to get to the moon. Um, it's kind of so. In some ways, this inspires this whole period of a kind of an age of discovery. Um, but you, it, it seems to me that that then becomes lost. Uh, maybe after the uh, the space shuttle disaster um, in the kind of the Reagan era. But do you, do you think we're recovering some of that sense of uh, space travel gripping the imagination again? <laughs>
1: Absolutely definitely. Um I think my publishers would like to think so too. <laughs> but no, ab- seriously, absolutely definitely. Um there is a there is a there is a new space age. I really believe that. I think that's back in the Zeitgeist use. That's a rather awful word. I mean I I really do. It is no longer a, a Cold War thing. Some people have asked me, quite a few people ask me, are we back in another Cold War with Russia and there's another space race? There isn't a space race with the Russians. I think the Russians have bowed out of the space race. They don't have the money for it. If you go to the Cosmodrome where Gagarin flew from, which is the biggest Cosmodrome in the world, I mean, it's the size of Kentucky, if not bigger, then what you see, yes, they're launching Soyuz rockets to the International Space Station, but the place is full of wild dogs and it's decaying and it's dilapidated and then there's no money there. You go to Cape Canaveral, where there is this injection of capital from private enterprise, from people like Jeff Bezos from Amazon, from SpaceX, obviously Elon Musk and others, Boeing. And what you're seeing is something which is exciting and which is new and which is developing and where there is money and where there is vision. And the vision is the key because people, these are the true heirs to the men like Korolev, the people I was, the man I was talking about before. And frankly, with despite all of his kind of dark and difficult past, somebody like Werner von Braun as well. These are people who want to tread into new worlds, who want to go back to the moon, but then go way beyond the moon and go to Mars and go to other places as well. And crucially, these are people, and people like Elon Musk has said so explicitly, who understand that the fate of our our humanity rests on our being able to escape this planet. Otherwise, we are ultimately doomed. We have to be doomed because we'll just burn up. We are doomed. So they understand this. And the excitement is there. You feel it. You felt it when... Perseverance landed, you know, the Mars Rover landed on Mars, on the Martian surface very recently. There was, that gripped the imaginations. And there's something really interesting that I discovered, which is this. I have a photograph of Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy, his wife, and Lyndon Johnson, who was then the vice president, standing in a room in the White House, watching Alan Shepard, America's first astronaut, fly from Cape Canaveral on May the 5th, 1961. So really very shortly after this podcast, podcast, it's May the 5th, 1961, and everybody's hearts are in their mouth as Alan Shepard starts America's comeback against the Soviet Union with this launch from Cape Canaveral. And there is this photograph, a wonderful photograph of Kennedy watching in a room in the White House. I also discovered a photograph of President Biden watching the Perseverance landing in the White House on television live as it were and it's the same room They're actually in the same room. And there's something quite powerful. There's 60 years between the young Kennedy watching this live event on television. It's the start, really, of the whole business of space exploration that would take us to the moon in 1969. And there's President Biden in the same room 60 years later, watching this moment when this rover actually, which is going to search for life on Mars actually lands on the Martian surface. So there is this connection across the decades. And it's a, in a way, that's a kind of a visceral example, a very visual moment that kind of exemplifies, as it were, underlines, underscores that connection between the two times. And I think that is where we are now. I'm hoping that's where we are now, because I think it's very exciting. And it's wonderful to me to think that here is Yuri Gagarin, the book that I've written, and this is the first step into, I call it the beyond, because I thought it was more than just a physical space that he's going into. It's also a philosophical space. Um, And he's going into this step, taking this incredible step, and we are still stepping, but we're stepping up now, 60 years later. And that, to me, can only be very exciting.
0: And I wonder whether you feel in the kind of the difference between those two times, whether it still applies the quote that you have right at the very beginning of uh, Lyndon Johnson, future, future President of the United States. In 1958, he says that control of space means control of the world. Do you think that that's something which is true in 2021? I think depressingly,
1: yes, I do. I mean, I do think... I do think there is, there you know, space, like anything, could be used for purposes peaceful and for purposes martial. And it feels to me like that was definitely the case in 1960, 61. There were spy satellites being built at that time. There was discussion about, uh, as there is now, about weaponizing space, about using satellites to destroy other satellites, or even satellites that could drop various kinds of atomic bombs, if you like, on the United States or the USSR back then. And there's that same kind of conversation taking place now, the weaponizing of space. So in a sense that is true, that is definitely true and there are those that will argue that the Chinese space programme which is also really kind of getting, you know, under, I mean definitely there's a lot of impetus and thrust behind that programme, also has kind of elements that are potentially exactly as it was with the Soviets back in 1961 but I, you know, I don't want to think of this all in terms of wars and weapons and control, it did exist. It does also exist, but I think there's the other dimension, which, if I'm not sounding a little bit too woolly, is our common humanity and our common purpose, and that is about the fact that all of us are in the same boat. We're all travelling on the same spaceship, Earth. Here, that same place that Yuri Gagarin looked down on and saw was so fragile in its atmosphere and so beautiful, um, but could fall apart. You know, it's it's just all we've got, really, and. In that thrust, in that other way of looking at space, it isn't just about killing each other and war and division, whether that's Cold War or Hot War. It's also about all of us finding some kind of purpose and excitement in exploration, in adventure, in moving out beyond our planet, in having vision and ultimately in having existence beyond this planet. And so I think these two things are always going to feel in some kind of rivalry with each other and perhaps they both help to infuse and give each other purpose and dimension. But ultimately my hope is that what we're really looking at over the longer term is not death and destruction and weaponizing and killing, but but exploration and adventure and ultimately existence.
0: So the book is Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. It's written by my guest, Stephen Walker, and published by Harper. But for now, Stephen, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much for having me. Enjoyed it. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusek. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.